trip, before we start out this episode, I just wanted to start with like another question. I've enjoyed our uh, our discussions before we get started. Likewise. Uh, so like this is something that comes to mind. We've talked a lot about like church and our roles here and the fact that we're both married and uh, I have a child. Uh, but like what is something outside of those things? So outside the church context, outside your home context, like something that, that Trip Gordon loves that would not be necessarily the first answer someone would think about when they look at you. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think they would get this pretty quickly. And <laughs> I think you've known this about me and it, you gathered it somewhat quickly. But it's, you know, we have two or three conversations. You might not know this, but by the fourth or fifth conversation, I think people would definitely gather it. But, uh, you know, I was born in 1992. Mm-hmm. So that means at the turn of the millennium, I was at a very formative age. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, 2001, 2002, 2003, I was 9, 10, 11. Mm-hmm. At same time, a certain series of movies came out called uh, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and uh, I tell you, Jake, I've, I can vividly remember watching The Fellowship of the Ring for the first time. And I, I, that was like a life-defining <laughs> moment. <laughs> My life, like there's a before and after, <laughs> you know, 2001 moment for me. And that was watching that movie. And I really, I, it was, I loved it. I immediately read the books. I immediately just became totally enraptured by the world of Tolkien. Mm-hmm. And uh, it really is something that I can nerd out on pretty quickly. <laughs> I, I, it's not just that I, I love the story, but I've really come to really be interested by the man, Tolkien himself, mm-hmm. and Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. But uh, I just, I love the world that he's created. And I, every few years, I come back to his books. Last year, particularly, I really dove into some of the, is the nerd word for you, the, the legendarium, the uh-huh. world of yep. the larger Tolkien world. And um, yeah, it's, I, I, I can't speak Elvish or anything like that, <laughs> but I love the, how the redemptive narrative is woven into the story. And I'll say like when I became a Christian and I came back and read Tolkien, it was just a, it's only become that much more beautiful to come back to his stories uh, because I see more clearly, you know, it's not like Lewis where he just puts in, here's lion Jesus. (laughs) It's a more creative way of detailing redemption and I think the idea for Tolkien that in the midst of a really dark and broken world, there are little acts of kindness from simple everyday people mm-hmm. that just like really touches my heart and has since I was a kid. And there's so many things I love about that world, uh, but people always got mad about like the three Hobbit movies and yeah. they need to make three Hobbit movies. I'm like, you could have given me 20 and I would have been <laughs> at every midnight release, you know? Oh. Uh, so I, I, it's something that, that just really tugs at my heartstrings and I, I love really deeply. Uh, I've just about got every Tolkien book you can imagine on my bookshelf mm-hmm. and uh, biographies and, and everything else. So if you want a good conversation, maybe a very long conversation, <laughs> come ask me who, yes. what I think about some some themes or other things in Tolkien's writing. So yeah, that's a, that's a little something I love. Yes. Um, but uh, how about yourself, man? Something that you would not know about me that's not church or my wife Here's a fun fact about Jake that you might not know. So there may be people listening to this who have gotten by, walked by my office at church, and I'm typically always wearing headphones when I'm working. Uh, and you may be thinking, like, oh, Jake, he's listening to music or, or he's got something going on. I am listening nearly nonstop to cooking shows. Uh. I love 
to pieces. Uh, not just like cooking. I love cooking. Like I, I love cooking so much. It is such a cool, creative, fun thing to do. Uh, I don't use recipes. I don't. I don't know how to do anything from training. I, it, there's a lot of like trial and error. But I love just the the fun of cooking. I cook mm. pretty much every night. My wife and I. Uh, came to an agreement very early on in our marriage. Uh, my wife, Katie, hates cooking, and mm -hmm. I love cooking. So we just decided that I would just cook <laughs> for mm -hmm. the whole time. Um, and it's been really great. There are definitely nights where I don't want to cook, but I really enjoy the, the concept of cooking a lot. And I love listening to cooking shows and learning new things and learning from people on the Internet who know a lot about this or that or making this stew or these awesome. things. Uh, are you into baking much? I, so here's the thing about baking. I, I find baking exactly antithetical to all of that. Ah. Baking is so precise and mathematic yeah. and uh, there's so much chemistry and, and intelligence that goes into this much water to this much flour to this much sugar gives For you sure. this reaction. And there's no guess and check. Mm -hmm. You can't put a dough together, put it in the oven and halfway through go, you know, that needs more water and change it. Like you're done. You've, you've committed. So I love to cook, and I love cooking shows, and uh, that's probably what I'm listening to if you walk by my house. Sweet. Moving on quickly. So on today's episode, we're talking about the roots, which we talked about a little bit at the end of last episode. Could you give us a quick reminder of what we're talking about inside the roots? All I remember is they were some pretty long words. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So again, ultimately, we're working with the telescope here. We're getting to the bullseye of the gospel of worship of Jesus. Last week, we talked about how we how we how we get to that through word and sacrament. Now we're talking about, okay, remember at the beginning we talked about Anglicanism is gospel-centered and historically rooted. Mm -hmm. We've talked a lot so far about the gospel-centeredness. Now we want to get in a little bit more to the historically rooted side of things. How do we, a big topic, Jake, I don't know if you've heard it, in the church world is we want to be a gospel-centered church. I hear that all the time. Uh -huh. We want gospel-centered worship. We want gospel-centered preaching. We want gospel-centered mission work. We want gospel-centered everything. The only question behind that is an obvious one, which is what does that mean? <laughs> and and sure. does it mean, hey, we just literally preach justification by faith in literally everything we do. And mm -hmm. if justification by faith is not mentioned, then the gospel has not been preached. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, or does it mean, hey, no, we, we preach the love of Jesus and everything. That, that For people, that's the gospel. Maybe it's social change. Maybe it's all sorts of things. What is the gospel? How do we, how do we know that we're preaching the gospel? How do we know that we're gospel-centered? What we're saying in that we desire to be a historically rooted tradition is that to answer that question, you have to acknowledge that there have been saints before us who have sought to answer that very question, and they have done a decent job at it, <laughs> <laughs> that we're not the first people who have ever desired that the gospel be presented to the church's saints and, and shepherded well there. So that's what we're saying, and, and specifically in our roots, in our history, the Anglican church discusses its government in saying that we are an Episcopal church, that's our polity, in saying that we are a creedal church in our affirmations of what we believe in the historic church's creeds, and in our Catholicity, in saying what we are unified with in the church historically and the church globally. Mm -hmm. So those are our roots. That's what I hope to get into a little bit more. But that, that makes sense of why uh, we're even talking about the history is so, yeah, I, th yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think uh, the idea that um, you want to have gospel centered worship or a, a gospel centered service. Um, and we talked a little bit in the last episode about like what is the gospel, but like how, how do you 
take that message and kind of sublimate it into a, a prayer mm -hmm. or a worship song or mm -hmm. a worship service generally. Uh, like what does that look like? Um, so I'm excited to hear what you've got for us today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, I'll just dive into some things. Um, so the first thing we discuss is that fun word of episcopacy <laughs> and saying that we are an Episcopal church. And here we get into a little bit of the history of some things, so, so bear with me. But many of you may know that historically, the Anglican Church in North America was at one time a part of the Episcopal Church. Um, the Episcopal Church, for maybe people who they look at me like I have three heads because I say I'm Anglican, they, they won't look at me as curious if I say Episcopal. That's a little bit more palatable or understandable. Mm -hmm. The Episcopal Church in America was at one time, this is where it gets a little bit more nuanced, prior to the American Revolution a part of the Church of England. So was, this is when I said originally George Washington was an Anglican, uh -huh. you know. George Washington was, uh, you know, participated in morning and evening prayer, that type of stuff. But alas, after the American Revolution, not many people who just fought a war with England wanted to remain a part of the Church of England or wanted <laughs> to be Anglican. That was a very Tory thing. That was mm -hmm. very, uh, yeah, that was a very red coat thing, if you will. Makes a lot of sense. So they reorganized themselves. They, they, there were still bishops. There were still ministers, clergymen, who they're not just going to leave their parish. So they reorganized themselves as the Episcopal Church. And so Episcopal simply refers to the form of church government. So that comes from the Greek word episkopos, which means overseer or bishop. So similarly, the Presbyterian church is governed by presbyters mm -hmm. or elders, or congregational churches are governed by the congregation. So episcopal simply means that it is our form of church polity, government, or hierarchy, if you will, and all that is run by the episcopacy, that is bishops. So in just now zooming into the last 20 years or so, sadly, as a result of an unorthodox streak in the Episcopal Church in North America at the turn of the century, at the turn of the, the millennium, many Episcopalians who still held to that first distinctive that we talked about in the last podcast, that we are a word-based church, mm -hmm. found some tensions with the existing realities of the Episcopal Church in the early 2000s. They found themselves in conflict remaining in the Episcopal Church. And so, in the effort to return to those roots of the Anglican Church, the Anglican Church of North America was created. There's, there's more story there. For a few years, we were under the leadership of African bishops, and the ACNA was planted as a result of that leadership discernment under the leadership of many um, Anglican bishops and Anglican leadership in the global south. Mm -hmm. So we are not just, you know, in a vacuum here in North America. We have leadership and in communion with, with um Christians all around the world. So by saying then that we are an, an Episcopal church, to be clear, I'm communicating, we're communicating that we value the ancient and well-tried form of ministry through the role of bishops and bishops who specifically serve as shepherds or teachers who oversee a region or a district or in fun Anglican terms, we use the word diocese. Mm. Our diocese is the Diocese of the Carolinas current bishop is Steve Wood out of Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. And we have some regional assisting bishops here. And we have one in North Carolina, one in South Carolina. The one we see often is Bishop Terrell Glenn. So underneath all this, so Episcopacy is not just bishops. There's obviously, you see other guys up front that, like myself, we're not bishops. So what are we <laughs> doing up there? We recognize that God has called gifted 
bishops, presbyters or priests, and deacons to equip the people of God for their work of ministry in the world. So mm-hmm. uh, where other churches have their forms of church polity, maybe they have presbyters, deacons, maybe they have elders, deacons, maybe they just have elders and pastors, whatever. We have bishops who oversee a regional area of churches. They're the ultimate shepherd of a large variety of churches. We have specifically at the parish, we have priests or presbyters who oversee that parish. And then we have deacons who serve those presbyters, all of which are ordained positions. Um, so yeah, that's a short and sweet to the point. A broad uh, overview. But there's more questions I could understand to, to any and all of that. Okay. Um, so so you've, got, you've got bishops and you've got presbyter priests and you've got deacons. So where do you get all that? Mm-hmm. Is that kind of just like a historic English thing or uh, where do Anglicans kind of get this Episcopal structure? Right. Yeah, absolutely. I can try to cover some of those things, uh, but it's a whole chapter in some theology <laughs> book that you <laughs> okay, can go read. The, the cliff notes. Yeah. Um, uh, well, let me walk one by one through them if I could, starting with, I'll start at the other end of the spectrum, so okay. deacons and then moving into priest and bishop. So the deacon, the role of the deacon, um, it comes from a Greek word. This is a little bit more simple as we'll come to see from the Greek word diakonos. Mm. So in Acts 6, we see the church growing to such a size that the apostles found the business of distributing food a distraction to their primary task of teaching and preaching. So we see in that passage, they say, it is not right that we should neglect word of God in order to wait on tables. As a result of this, seven men were selected, Stephen, the first martyr, being the most well-known. So while these men are not specifically called deacons in that passage, the phrase wait on tables is the Greek phrase diakonane trapezius. But that diakonane, the service of the tables. So here we find that, that root word of the word deacon, so historically, in the Christian church, those set aside for the specific service within the church have been called deacons. Deacons are cited in our pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. And those within this, the context of the early church clearly had placed upon them the expectations of, of church leadership. So in our settings, deacons are ultimately servants. In our vestments, what we wear on Sundays, you'll see the deacon at times will wear a sash, and that, that sash across their body is communicating as compared to the priest, where the priest would wear the stole, that they take upon themselves on both shoulders, on both arms, the yoke of Christ, where the deacon only has the sash over, over the left shoulder, and the right arm, the right shoulder, is left for the purpose of service. Mm. So in our setting, yeah, deacons serve as assistant to priests and, and bishops. They read the gospel. They administer communion. And in our ordinations, we are told, and one of the reasons we start with the deacon role is that we are always a servant. We are always called to be and ordained as a servant before we are ordained to the role of, of spiritual leadership. Um, so yeah, that's where we start with, with deacons. Okay. Uh, now moving on to presbyter priests. Okay, uh, and before you do that one, you keep using two words. For correct. That. Is, is, is our presbyter and priest the same thing? Are they different? Yes, Good question, natural question. Uh, and this is tough, man. It could create some more confusion than clarity sometimes. Like, And I, I'm a big guy on, I want to be as clear as possible in my communication. So priest, that where I mentioned deacon comes from the Greek diakonos. Priest comes from the Greek 
presbyteros mm -hmm. that you hear there where presbyter comes from. This gets confusing a little bit when you compare terms from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So I think for many of us, the title priest makes us think of someone who performs sacrifices, right? Sure, sure like or, Aaron in the Old Testament. Correct, or who stands as an intermediary between man and God. Mm -hmm. This type of priest, a sacrificing priest in the Greek here, that, that word is hierus. Um, you like that one? I know you did. <laughs> that term is never applied to a Christian minister. That okay. term is not used in the New Testament for a Christian minister. It is only used in reference to Jesus as our great high priest, as mm. our great high hierus. Mm -hmm. In the New Testament, this is the ultimate priesthood. That, that's the type of priesthood that's reserved only for Christ. So why in the world would we use that term? Why would we use the term priest? Mm -hmm. Well, this is where fun linguistic uh, history is somewhat useful to dive into. Uh, I always kind of make this joke, but in the Avengers, I think Thor ha makes the comment that all words are made up. And so <laughs> they're, they're not made up out of the ether, though. They come from somewhere, I promise. Uh -huh. so the reason we use the word priest is a bit confusing part of that history. The Anglican or English word derived from the Greek is derived from the Greek word presbyteros, as I mentioned earlier. That's where we get our word presbyter. But here's the thing. Presbyter, it's not a translation. That's a transliteration of an, that's not an English word. That's a Greek word that we're just saying it's an English word. It's, it has, has a history that becomes now an English word. So the word literally translates to something like elder. That's what that word means. As English evolved over time, presbyter became proist in Old English, P-R-O-E-S-T. And then in Middle English, it became priest, P-R-E-E-S-T, and then in modern English, it became the word that we use, priest, P-R-I-E-S-T. Okay. So to be abundantly clear, a Christian priest is a presbyteros, mm -hmm. is an elder, as it accords with the witness of the New Testament. A Christian priest is never a hierus, is never a sacrificer. You know, personally, I'll just say this, because of all this confusion, sometimes I, I prefer to use the title presbyter because uh -huh. it just like avoids some of this confusion. But I'm I'm happy to use the 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 word priest, knowing this background. But not everybody knows that background. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes though, you use the word priest and or use the word presbyter, and people think you're not Anglican anymore. <laughs> you know. And it's like, well, wait a second. There's some background here that would be helpful to unpack. So I hope people listening to this uh, this has been helpful. Mm -hmm. With that said the role of priest or presbyter or elder in Anglican churches is to preach, is to teach, is to administer the sacraments, provide training to the laity, and often to, to run the parish, if you will. So where a deacon is called to serve the parish community, chiefly priests are called to lead and never forsaking, ultimately they're called to serve, but they're called to, to lead. And I, I, I mean, I just took Oaths of ordination, not too long ago. So this is fresh in my mind. Mm -hmm. uh, the presbyter that I, the, the the role of presbyter that I've been ordained into is to teach and feed the flock for whom Christ has died. Mm -hmm. um, it's a huge responsibility, and I mean, you heard it said it's when you fail to do that, like, there is a greater judgment placed upon the presbyter. Mm -hmm. There is a greater judgment per, 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 placed upon those who who desire such a position. Um, 
So, was that helpful? Yeah, in that? That, that helps a lot. I, yeah. That was the only one you were using two words for, so I yeah. just wanted to make sure we clarified Absolutely. both for me yeah. and the people. To be clear, I'm happy to use the language of priest. People mm -hmm. can still call me priest. I'm not saying they can't. It's just you can see where some of that complication yeah, is coming yeah, from. I can, yeah. Lastly, we have the role of bishop. So I mentioned earlier, uh, for each of these, I've mentioned the Greek word behind it. The Greek word here is episkopos. So how in the world do we get bishop from that? <laughs> that sounds something totally random. That's the only one that doesn't start with the right letter so far. So <laughs> literally, again, it literally translates to overseer. Often you'll see that word in the pastoral epistles as just overseer. Acts 20 uses this term mm -hmm. um, where Paul is talking to church leadership in Ephesus. He uses the words overseer, the episkopos. Philippians 1 and other places the term is used. Again, we, we, it's kind of the same thing as priest. Like you could use the word presbyter, you mm -hmm. could use the word overseer, but English has a funny way of changing that possibility. Uh, if you want to know, episcope becomes piscop, which becomes bishop in English. <laughs> uh, oh, man. So that's a whole other uh, linguistic history if you want it. But ultimately here, the bishop is the senior presbyter. He is the head shepherd of the diocese, charged to be a shepherd of the shepherds. Um, our catechism says as such, just, you know, want to toss this in here. The question is, what is the work of bishops? Answer. Bishops represent and serve Christ in the church as chief pastors, catechists, that is teachers, and missionaries in the tradition of the apostles. They are to confirm and ordain and to guard the faith, unity, and discipline of the church. There's a lot more I could potentially say on bishops. I think it's it's worth noting, however, that a lot of Christian denominations that stray away from the title of bishop are often forced to recreate essentially that office and function. <laughs> uh, bishops became more and more important in the early church as the church expanded. And we see this not just in some of the New Testament epistles, but also first and second century of the church. Mm -hmm. By whatever name you want to call them, you know, whether they are convention president or head presbyter or whatever it's called, it's very difficult for the church to function without these regional overseers. And we ascribe to this ancient and well-tried form of ministry through the role of bishops. So that answers some of what you're, what you're yeah, asking that, there? That helps a lot. That, that I, I think clarifies who all of these different people are. And it's, it's, it's helpful to know that like these are, these are, uh, biblically documented positions. Like mm -hmm. these aren't like, hey, we just made up. We had to come up with a with a hierarchy, and so our org chart. We just named the things what we thought would make the most sense. It's like, no, this is this is handed down from the Word, as we talked about last time. Like that's our origin for this thing. So that's that's encouraging. It's mm -hmm. good to know that we're looking back at the, the teachings of the, the Lord and being like, oh yeah, let's do that. That seems to make mm -hmm. the most sense. And uh, yeah, I think uh, I, I, would it be fair to say that that Paul in his the kind of missionary journeys is kind of functioning as a bishop because mm. um, he's setting up, appointing leaders, and then kind of moving on and setting mm -hmm. up more leaders, and then he's kind of keeping in contact with these mm -hmm. people. Would that be kind of a fair definition of him, or is he kind of something else? Because he is an apostle. Yeah. Um, so he gets kind of a weird difference. Perhaps. I mean, we never see that term applied to Paul. Okay. I think perhaps a better example is in Acts 15. You mm -hmm. see, you know, there's the council at Jerusalem mm -hmm. over what's happening with the church expanding out to Gentiles. And it seems like James takes the leadership role mm -hmm. of many of these presbyters coming together. Sure. And so there's many presbyters. There's a head presbyter that's representing that, that, 
that council, uh-huh. if you will. And that's what happens throughout the historic creeds as well. You've got a head, you've got bishops who are ultimately overseeing this council, uh-huh. communicating the doctrine being presented through this um, communion of of theologians, of divines, or, or whatever. So, and then James again. You, I mean, his letter. Uh, so James is an, an example of what I think is closer to what a, a bishop is in the New Testament. Well, that handles the the episcopal, um, mm-hmm. the the structure of the church and uh, the the leaders of it. Um, so, what's a creed? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it a, a band from the nineties? Was uh, with arms wide open. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, I wish. Probably not. <laughs> uh, so, so what is a creed? Yeah, absolutely. So that yeah, episcopacy is is one root, if you will. Now, moving to another one. The creeds, you know, at any service you've attended at Holy Trinity or an Anglican service or perhaps other traditions as well, you have at some point, at least here, said either the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Those are the two main creeds that we affirm. We actually affirm a third in our uh, declarations of the promise uh, of the province and in our 39 articles, and that's the Athanasian Creed. We we don't ever say that in a service, mainly because it's really, really long. <laughs> uh, That's nice of us. But trust me, we believe it. And mm. short, it describes our basic understanding of what we believe to be true of the Trinity. So now I'll say this, and, and this is true of my story too. Creeds can seem a little bit strange. Uh, back where I'm from, you may hear the classic statement, uh, I have no creed but Christ. I have no book but the Bible. Mm. So we're saying, hey, Creeds were good for a time, but ultimately my creed is the Bible. No, my, my, my book is the Bible. But I've come to see, and I hope others do as well, that the more we recite the creeds corporately, how beautiful being a creedal church can be. I, I've come to see that you know creeds help us keep, the, keep our arms and legs inside the vehicle, if you will, <laughs> of the safari ride of life, or, or specifically the safari ride of trying to determine what is and is not true about God. Mm-hmm. Try to just think about any and all questions you could ask about God in a five-minute span. I bet you you'll find a lot. And try now to answer those questions. And I bet you'll reach a wall where you're like, there's a creator-creature distinction where I don't know if I'm supposed to know all this stuff just yet. Sure. And even when I try to answer that question, I might be verging on dangerous territory mm-hmm. of misrepresenting who God is. And so that's, hey, guess what? Again, we're a gospel-centered and historically rooted. The church has tried to answer these questions wisely and we're not the only people who've asked these questions before so that so the creeds help us stay within the guardrails of orthodoxy as one of my seminary professors put it creeds are composed of words used to encapsulate the biblical drama Hmm. so naturally these encapsulations must serve as some of our primary resources in building a sustainable house of faith and, and making sure the telescope will stand, if you will. Mm. So I think they, they provide a, a guide or a blueprint so that we might avoid the many pitfalls of those who have too hastily attempted to explain Christ in their own words. So the words of the creeds, they encapsulate that biblical drama, like I said, but they also invite us to, to pledge our allegiance to the triune God, whom we claim to be Lord of our lives. So that's what I often say when I go up there to recite the creed with the congregation is I'll say, hey, this is not just a recitation. This is not just something, you know, okay, we say this and move on to the next thing. It's like, this is our pledge of allegiance. <laughs> there is an ultimate Lord of our lives, and this is what we believe to be true. Mm-hmm. In the Nicene Creed, there's a lot of things we say there, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, all these things that are very doctrinally true. But one point I really like to point out is it says, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. 
why are we reciting this creed? So we might know how we are saved. <laughs> I think that's something, why is the Trinity important? Why is the triune God important? Why, why can't we just say what we want to say about uh, the nature of God? It's like, well, if you misrepresent that, you might misrepresent how we come to be saved. <laughs> sure. And you might misrepresent the gospel, which again, obscures our telescope, obscures the, bull, the bullseye that we're, we're targeting towards. So mm-hmm. in our effort to be historically rooted, we trust that this helps us get to more and more of Jesus, helps us get to more and more of the gospel. So that's uh, at the core of what our historic creeds are. Okay, cool. And I, I think to add to that point, I think in the same way that the telescope is valuable to somebody who maybe isn't as, again, educated as someone who is a, uh, a minister on staff who's yeah. been to a seminary, like they, they, I think they enrich the worshiping experience of somebody like me who comes into a service and again, doesn't necessarily know like, oh, what, what would be the best way to affirm this faith that we mm-hmm. all share together? And it's like, well, we've got a, a historic prayer that was constructed by people of high understanding uh, who, who put this together and that affirms all of these different facets of the faith, but not for its own sake, right. but that we might be encouraged and reminded of the truths of the gospel mm-hmm. and the truths of our lives together. Like, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. It's like walking into a... Um, uh, a restaurant and instead of being greeted by a buffet where you could kind of eat anything and there's really no direction being handed like a five course meal and be right. like, no, no, just eat this in this order. It will be delicious. Right. Um, yeah. Like it's to your benefit that it is curated to some yeah, degree. Absolutely. Okay. So those are historic creeds of the church generally. Mm-hmm. Are there any specific confessional statements that are, are Anglican in mm-hmm. nature or, or maybe something that is truly like, unique to Anglicanism that people not, might not know about? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, to be clear, where a creed can serve Baptists, Presbyterians, Anglicans, and Lutherans alike, there's what's called confessions, which okay. serve to clarify what doctrines and teachings this tradition holds in common with the old faith of Rome, while also clarifying where reformers were forced to disagree with Rome <laughs> in their discovery of... Uh, more faithful teachings of, of scripture. So for instance, you know, Lutherans, their confession is what's called the Augsburg confession. Mm-hmm. Um, Presbyterians largely have the Westminster confession, which was formed during English civil war. And, and the classic Baptist statement of faith is the London Baptist confession of, of 1689. So there's your uh, trivia for your next uh, <laughs> Jeopardy watch. Uh, but our confession of faith is what's called the 39 articles of religion. That was finalized in 1571. Uh, we'd need another podcast again in full to discuss all of that. Uh, you want to do that, Jake? Yeah, discuss all 39 all articles? 39 articles, yeah. We're doing, what is this, four episodes? Right. I, I <laughs> that, that would be a much longer right. uh, episode. <laughs> For now, I think it's just helpful to know that the 39 articles are, they're undoubtedly a result of the Protestant Reformation. It is a Protestant confession. And it's particularly this desire of the principles of reformed Catholicity discussed in our first podcast that, that guides the principles of the 39 articles. And it's for that principle to, to make itself known in the church. It operates in conversation with, though it's not precisely the same as other confessions of the time. 
uh, it would find agreement with some of that Augsburg Confession or the, the Dutch Reformed Confession of the, the Belgic Confession, the Westminster Confession. It would find agreement with a lot of those, and they're helpful to come to at times. But Anglicans derive their theological foundation from the 39 Articles of Religion, which is a product of some of those other movements. So you you may often hear the, the road to Anglicanism is what's called the, the Canterbury Trail, a mm. uh, little, little pun on Canterbury Tales, Geoffrey Chaucer. Uh-huh. Uh, but... You know, Canterbury being the historic home of Anglicanism, there's a a trail that leads to it. Well, as with any trail, there are, of course, trailheads, you know, Mm. the the starting point that leads us in a direction, markers which point us in the direction that this tradition is heading. And the articles I've often understand, I've often understood, they they serve us in this way. They kind of serve as a trailhead. I'll just point out, you know, interestingly, the articles are the shortest of all those other Reformational confessions. Make of that what you will. <laughs> but I find it's not a coincidence that the guy who wrote Mere Christianity came from the Anglican tradition. Mm. From the beginning, from that trailhead, the heart of Anglican identity has been to hold within itself what I have heard called a nucleic synthesis of reformational Ooh, okay. insights. So that's a real fancy way <laughs> of saying it. it's the... Uh, acorn that grows into the oak of a flourishing gospel-centered church. It's a fancy way of saying it seeks to communicate the essential elements of what it means to be a mere Christian. Um, So yeah, if you read it, you know, it's just normally typically a a statement about uh, the the sacraments or a statement about um, the nature of Christ, and it's typically a paragraph or two. It's, it tries to bottle up a lot of the the essential elements of what we're communicating about this very complex theological topic. So, yeah, that's uh, that's our 39 articles, and it's um, real helpful to read if people have time. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, 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 it, you said it's the shortest of all of these options? Correct. Okay, good, good. good cool. <laughs> well, maybe we will find time then. All right, let's do it, Trip. Trip, so we're Catholic, apparently. Yes. Um, yes, that's our last point. We are a Catholic church. What do you think about that, Jake? Uh, you ready to, you're in the magisterium? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of confusing. So, like, when, when you say, oh, we're Anglican. By the way, we're Catholic. It's like, but wait, we're not, but we're not, like, Catholic Catholic, yeah. right? Um, so yeah. I think that, for me especially, like, of all the points you've made so far, that is the one that uh, I am the most confused by. Right. Um, so I'm looking forward to your explanation of of. What does that mean? I, I suspect that it means that my understanding of the word Catholic is wrong, yeah. and that I don't know what that word actually means, but I'd love for you to tell me more about it. Yeah, again, all words are made up, right? So, <laughs> um, yeah, so in the Declarations of the Province, not going to read it for you here, so you can thank me later, but <laughs> it talks about how it acknowledges the seven councils of the early church, so the creeds we just talked about. Mm-hmm. They, they are a result of councils that mm-hmm. met. Um, so the Nicene Creed was a result of the Council of Nicaea. So it, it's, and there's other councils that happen too that, are, that have statements that come with those. And we, we it, the, the declaration is saying we affirm those and we affirm those that are in accordance and agreeable with scripture. So unless you're deeply read in your church history, I don't expect you to be up to speed <laughs> on the, uh, those seven councils. I appreciate it. But that. what I always like to mention is that key takeaway by mentioning that declaration is that by mentioning that the Anglican church acknowledges these councils, it once again historically roots us in that, what we like to say in that creed, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church that God has been building since the first century. 
you know, while Anglicanism is a Protestant tradition, we do not believe that somehow God abandoned the church until some German guy posted 95 theses on a door at Wittenberg. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, because we affirm that God has moved across time and space and place, the, the Anglican church, quotes here, is a part of this Ephesians 4. One body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So in saying we are Catholic, I am, of course, not, Jake, to perhaps your, your, uh, your, your joy here. I'm not <laughs> saying that we are Roman Catholic. Uh, Catholic comes from the Greek word katholikos, meaning complete or universal. Okay. So indeed, I'd say that the, the Roman church, when healthy, is a part of the Catholic Church. In saying we are a Catholic Church, then we're intentionally seeking to locate ourselves within that one universal church that God has woven together across time and space or across history and the globe. So something I at least have come to experience is that the deeper I go into the Anglican tradition, the more charitable I've actually become to other traditions, mm. the more beautiful the, the rest of the Catholic, the Catholicos, the universal church has become to me, and the world of Christianity has become that much more beautiful to me. That's not to say that I affirm every tradition's creed or theology, mm-hmm. but that at the least I can see this Catholic effort for the church globally to to have this unified effort to make known Christ. So specifically how this makes itself known in the Anglican world, the Anglican communion, it reaches across 161 different countries and includes 70 million different members, a large majority of whom are in the global South. Mm. I've, I've heard it said before that if someone was an alien and they just dropped down to earth tomorrow and they said, show me an Anglican, odds are percentages wise, they would be shown likely a, a woman, a, a woman of color, particularly in the global South, likely impoverished under the poverty line. So therefore being an Anglican means so much more than just belonging to a local parish church. It means joining the vast company of Christians all across the world. So mm-hmm. it's both a historic and global understanding of what we're a part of when we, when we partake in the fellowship of the saints. Good. I figured you'd say something like that. Yeah. That's, that's good. That, that's, that is very clarifying, though. That helps a lot. Okay, so we have talked a tremendous amount about like Anglicanism right. or, or distinctives of this tradition, which feels a little bit like, in your original analogy, of us tinkering with the telescope, right. us looking at the facets and gadgets and being like, wow, this thing is cool. So how do we ultimately use all this to get to the point where we're looking through the telescope, where right. the telescope then again disappears to right. show us the object? Right. Yeah. And I'm happy you mentioned that. And I just, you know, looking back at that, that first conversation we had, ultimately <laughs> there are, there is somebody perhaps listening to this is like, man, I, I just want to love Jesus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. And I hope, Seems people, like a lot. <laughs> and I hope people are called to mind that, Hey, Anglicanism does too. And this is just the roots that can help us trust that this is planted in the ground firmly. Mm. But I will say this is where I find Anglicanism, especially in its more reformational expression that we've discussed so unbelievably helpful with that dilemma. <laughs> uh, Richard Hooker, uh, another English reformer, a name you'll hear time and time again in the Anglican world. He's he's arguably like the premier Anglican theologian. You know, uh, uh, reformed folks have Calvin, Lutherans have um, 
have Luther in. A lot of times Anglicans refer to, to Richard Hooker. He's well known for what's known as the three-legged stool, the three-legged stool of scripture, reason, and tradition as the three legs which support the life of the church. Now, you should know, Jacob, <laughs> uh, that there are some within the Anglican world who interpret Hooker to mean that these three legs are equally supporting. Mm. Uh, or they, they, sorry, let me say, they, they could be led to believe that they are equally supporting, which is where I find the analogy a bit incomplete or perhaps unhelpful. Uh, to clarify, tradition and reason are indeed tools. The scripture and reason that we've, some of which we've discussed today, are indeed tools to help to help us unpack the beauties and the benefits of the gospel, but they are by no means equal partners along with scripture in guiding the church. You know, John Yates, <laughs> you ever heard of him? Uh, <laughs> the third, he he himself discuss, discusses this in his in his book Reformational Anglicanism. He he likes the analogy. He says it is far more accurate to speak of scripture as a garden bed in which reason and tradition are tools used to tend the soil and unlock its nutrients and bring forth the beauty within it. Mm. I found that helpful. And not to have competing analogies with the rector himself, <laughs> but the, the analogy I have found helpful is that, you know, Scripture is indeed the feast in its totality. Mm. It is the central means by which we are nourished and by which we know God. But, you know, you go to any steak restaurant, you try to eat with your hands, there's actually like some tools to help you unpack <laughs> that mm. that that feast for all it's worth, you know. So reason and tradition are indeed the proper utensils, the knife and the fork, or perhaps a well-paired glass of wine <laughs> <laughs> enabling you to enjoy the feast and all its complexity. For my teetotalers out there, I would just say the knife and the fork are, are, are <laughs> reason say, and tradition. You have guaranteed that we are not Baptists. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> in, in case one's gotten lost in the metaphors, I just want to say, John, again, helpfully clarifies this for us, I think. He says that on secondary matters where Scripture is silent or its meaning is debated, we are right to use the tools that God has given us. So viewing matters through the lens of the church's tradition and applying the careful scrutiny of reason in order to discover God's will for us. I'd say, you know, this understanding, I think, helps us best grasp what's happening between the first and the 15th centuries of the church and why those creeds are so important. When I say they are encapsulations, that's what I'm talking about. You know, the, the terms that they come to use. Sometimes you can't find those terms precisely in scripture, but they don't come out of the ether. There, there, there are these men and women trying to discern what is God's will for the church, and they use these terms um, as a conclusion of that. So I'd say it also helps us consider the immense value of the Reformation, but not doing so at the neglect of the witness of the church and her saints throughout time. So, um, yeah, that's how I've, that that three-legged stool, ultimately, please know, Scripture is still our main uh, feast, but we use these tools ultimately to get us there. So. Great. Yeah. All right, well, we're almost there. We're almost yes. done. So that's, what have we done now? We've done the, the we've done the telescope. We've done the bullseye. We've done the roots now. So all we've got left is the frame, which I'm I'm, I'm excited, but almost a little disappointed by. We're almost done. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the next one I think is we'll be talking about. We are a liturgical church, and there's what everybody's been waiting for, right? <laughs> okay, like liturgy. I thought this is what Anglicanism was. And so we'll finally get to there. Okay. And then we lastly discuss what is. 
okay, we go through these six things, which makes us an Anglican church. So that clarifies some things in regards to what does modern Anglicanism look like and what's the mission of modern Anglicanism as a Protestant, evangelical, and missional church. So, yeah, okay. that's what we'll be discussing. Great, and we will be finally done with answering the question of what is Anglicanism. Yep. Uh, <laughs> hopefully, fully sufficiently. Uh, I know I've learned a lot, so I'm looking forward to a trip. Just one more to go. Yep, awesome. Awesome.